Welcome to the latest episode of Talking Transitions, the special podcast series brought to you by Foresight Climate and Energy and EY. I'm David Weston, Editor-in-Chief at Foresight and your host. And in this series, we're looking at how the transition to a sustainable economy, both from an environmental but also social perspective, is affecting three key areas, the energy and resources industry, the financial services sector and government. Guiding me along the way will be key EY thought leaders from the three different areas. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Will Road, EY's global private equity and ESG leader. Hi, Will. Thanks for joining us. Hi, David. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Today, we're discussing the role of blended finance and how it can support the financial services sector in unlocking investment opportunities for a sustainable world. It's one of the key challenges with funding the climate transition is that many sustainable development projects are not commercially viable due to high upfront costs and long payback periods. By combining public and private capital through blended finance, it is possible to leverage public funding to help reduce the risk and lower the cost of capital for private investors, thereby making it easier to attract private investment into sustainable development projects. Joining Will and me to delve into how blended finance can grow as a tool are Cara Mangone, Head of Sustainable Finance Group at Goldman Sachs, Karen Fang, Global Head of Sustainable Finance for Bank of America, Emmanuel Lagaric, Co-Head of Global Climate Strategy at American investment firm KKR. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Begin with you, Will. Could you provide a brief definition of blended finance and its role in funding sustainable development projects? Is this a relatively new concept? Absolutely. Thanks, David. So um, as you mentioned in your introductory remarks, it is indeed what it says on the tin. It's a blend of public and private capital. Um, it's not new as a concept. It's been around for, I would say, decades, really, and has very much its legacy in terms of helping developing economies, especially build out key infrastructure. And you see a number of, say, multilateral development banks that help uh, support in that process. But when it comes to sustainability, um, the sustainability agenda and transition projects, um, clearly this has sort of entered a new phase in the evolution of what blended finance means. Not only do we see it um, as being a particularly useful mechanism for financing projects in developing economies, but also in developed economies where there have been some pretty significant legislations that allow for public money uh, to be deployed into uh, transition. So in the US, for example, most famously, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law are two examples of legislation in the United States that are attracting public capital that can help um, enable private uh, financiers to also become involved in transition projects. So what sort of numbers are we looking at? How big is this area of sustainable finance? Um, Indeed. So we just recently conducted a study um, where we did do some market sizing. Um, the The numbers are big. Um, over, you know, globally, we've identified Uh, There's um, roughly 21 to 22 trillion in capital that's been committed to the transition. Um, Banks have committed up to 9 trillion in debt and governments and other government agencies have committed up to 4 trillion of equity. And then there are other actors such as uh, private equity and other funds um, that are also willing to make um, equity investments in transition finance. The issue here, though, is that out of that 21 trillion, only 1 trillion has been deployed by the end of 2022. Now, admittedly, that uh, amount of money is cumulative and has been estimated for deployment from 2022 to 2030. 
but I think we would all agree that we would have liked to have seen a greater amount of deployment um, even though they were relatively early on in the stage. Absolutely. Um, I think we've all kind of just returned from Dubai uh, at the COP28 summit. Um, I'd like to go around the table very quickly uh, and just quickly look at how successful was COP28 in terms of supporting blended finance? Was there a lot of conversation around this area? Um, Karen, let's let's start with you. What were your thoughts coming out of COP28? Yeah, so I actually think overall it was relatively successful. Um, in, in blended finance, um, depending on who you ask, tended to be used for emerging markets um, reference. But I, I do think pretty much any type of energy transition finance that we have to do requires blended finance because even in the most mature decarbonization technology space, that's wind and solar and the renewable energy space. If you think about how we got to break even, right? When you look at new build cost of wind and solar power plants versus a traditional fossil fuel power plant, it is now cheaper for renewable power plants in the new build sense, cheaper in 90% of the global economies. That's largely because of regulation, but also blended finance between public and private sector. The United States has enjoyed investment tax credits for solar and production-based tax credits largely for wind for over 15 years. And that's driven down the green premium, if you will, and made it cheaper or break even with fossil fuel technologies. That is what we're hoping to do, and, you know, to your point, leveraging the Inflation Reduction Act, leveraging the Infrastructure Act to really drive down the cost of other important low-carbon technologies like green hydrogen, carbon capture, biofuels, waste to energy, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think in the traditional sense, you know, any type of financing that requires public incentives, public assistance, as well as private sector funding, which in terms of dollars, it's huge from a private sector perspective. But because of the de-risking that's provided by these assistance from the public sector, that makes those projects possible. And I think to Will and your point, clearly blended finance emerging markets is needed because there is no way private sector can go in alone to finance these transition, which easily cost over a trillion dollars a year, just in emerging markets alone, you know, especially when those governments are facing triple crisis, right? Debt crisis, climate crisis, and biodiversity crisis for them to do this alone. So I do think it's been relatively successful, but it's still a drop in the bucket, whether it's, you know, Green Climate Fund getting $12.8 billion funding finally after so many years, whether it's the new Altera Fund, whether it's the DFC-led, you know, blended finance task force across development finance institutions. You know, I, I think my colleagues and friends on the panel can talk about how many other green shoots we're seeing. But overall, I think we need to see a lot more funding uh, in the blended finance space, especially for emerging markets. Uh, where I think in mature technologies, emerging technologies in OECD, we can see pathways for them to actually get the funding it needs. Mm. Uh, Emmanuel, is that something you would agree with there? And what was sort of was your outcome from the, from the COP twenty eight summit? Yeah, of course I agree, and it was it was I think uh, uh, overall uh, very positive. Uh, probably the, the the it was a maybe a blessing uh, that that it was organized in the country where it was organized and led by by who it was led uh, by. Uh, Sotana Jaber was under so much scrutiny that uh, he felt obliged to uh, to make it perfect and and they deliver uh, frankly speaking on on, on that <clears throat> on that commitment so they delivered on, on many many dimensions uh, of course not everybody is uh, is happy with it, with all the outcomes but but uh, it is 
it's probably one of the most consequential cops since Paris. Uh, actually, I would I would subscribe that. And in blended finance, so as as Karen was mentioning, so we saw the announcement of Altera, we saw the announcement of the of the the, the Global South uh, Fund. So it's it's progressing. I think this COP was the COP of uh, uh, responsible, growth-oriented, wealth creation-oriented decarbonization, decarbonization. I think it's a, there's a general understanding across the planet now, at least in uh, developed uh, countries, that uh, decarbonization is good business. Uh, it creates jobs, it creates wealth. Uh, um, governments have understood that just uh, taxing up or regulating out Fossil fuels is not enough or not efficient, uh, and this is why they all come with with their formula: the IRA, the Altera Fund, the Canada Growth Fund, the Green New Deal in Europe, and so on and so forth. Which is f- that new form of blended finance in decarbonization, right? So you're just uh, de-risking the field for 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 investors like uh, like like us, um, who anyway should be the ones. Uh, uh, writing the big check uh, at, at the end. But that, that de-risking notion is extremely important mm-hmm. for us. Uh, and Cara, what, how, what were your outcomes from COP28? Well, I think there were there were quite a few. I mean, the fact that I agree with what Emmanuel said, the fact that um, you know energy was really at the table for this COP and in terms of the final language that was announced towards the end, um, kind of in the final hours um, in terms of transitioning away from fossil fuels. I mean, that's the first time that that language, you know, has been in a COP agreement, you know, um, in history. So I think there, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of focus on that being an important part of the conversation and in terms of country strategy. And that, that is really critical, right? It's hard to have energy transition without energy at the table. Um, So that, that I think is particular area as it relates to blended finance. I mean, in the first few days of COP28, there was a, uh, there was an announcement around loss and damage, an actual you know commitment in terms of dollar amount, which will be over seven hundred million. Um, I know millions, not you know billions or trillions. So I think you know to, to Karen's point, um, we're still kind of dropping a bucket relative to where the ultimate financing needs um, are. But but that's certainly important in terms of you know funding that can ultimately go in from the public sector, and then paired with that, you saw a lot of development banks. Um, you know, coming out and saying the World Bank is going to increase climate financing to 45% of, you know, total lending, which I think is a increase of $9 billion. The Asian Development Bank uh, came out and said we're going to do more specifically in the Philippines and other markets. Um, you have the same thing kind of in LATAM and Caribbean. So I think you do have a lot of the public sector entities also coming up, coming to the table and saying, okay, we know we need to do more here. And I think, you know, you obviously have a lot of private sector folks on this conversation. So I think what that leads to is then, you know, how does the private sector come in so that as that additional public sector capital or development finance gets put on the table, you actually have a multiplier effect. So it's not, you know, another $9 billion from the World Bank, but you're actually able to get that to much higher um, dollars of impact. And so why is blended finance uh, crucial in the context of the energy transition? Surely there is enough private capital uh, around uh, to fund the energy transition? Um, well, look, I think relative to estimates of where funding no- needs to go to deliver on global climate goals, I think um, there, there's still a gap within the private sector. And, and that, shouldn't, that shouldn't be a surprise because energy transition is very complicated, right? And what you're talking about is 
it's great to have these high level numbers of total investment needed in a year. Um, but when it comes down to it, right, this is ultimately about, you know, specific investment decisions. And in the private sector, that really comes down to commercial viability. Right. And so if you look at, um, you know, the cost curves of what has happened over, you know, with low carbon solutions in areas like solar and wind, some of this has been helped a lot by government incentives. The cost is down 60 to 90 percent over the past 10 years. Right. So we've seen dramatic declines in cost for um, for low carbon solutions. But there's certain low carbon solutions that are still pretty high end of the cost curve, green hydrogen, carbon capture. Um, there's certainly, you know, developments in terms of policy like the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States that will help. Um, but ultimately, this comes down to a risk return calculus, right, in terms of deployment. And so and that's just in general in terms of energy transition. Um, so so really, the, the idea is how, how do you actually make energy transition commercially viable? Um, that's happening in, in, you know, in a lot of different markets, particularly in developed markets. Um, I think there's practical questions around, you know, pacing and how do you get, you know, transmission and intermittency and storage and all of those things working. Um, but, um, you know, but but that that's definitely um, in motion when it comes to emerging markets, which is, I think, a lot of where we're focused on with the blended finance topic. Um, it's a little bit different. You may have technologies that have reached commercial viability, if you will, in certain developed markets, but are not viewed that way in emerging markets. Um, and so would, I would really describe it as kind of three core things of why you need this blending, if you will, um, of different types of financial capital to really improve bankability. One is the ability to de-risk. Um, and so that just, you know, that, there's a lot of different mechanisms that you can use to do that. You know, credit guarantees are one way. The second is um, demonstration effect. So this is particularly important in markets where they haven't seen a technology before. Um, and so the ability to use kind of blended finance to, to be able to have a demonstration effect is important. And then I would say the third is um, a little bit more of kind of enhancing returns. And, and some, some of the ways you can do that are through things like technical assistance, which is a little bit different. So things that you typically in the private sector wouldn't do, but you could use concessional or grant funding to be able, um, you know, to, to create a better kind of conditioning environment for that particular investment. And, uh, another way to look at it, uh, uh, just to complement what Carol just was just saying, if, if you look at what it takes to decarbonize the physical economy, it's probably 12 or 12, between 12 and 15 technologies, right? So solar power, electrification of transportation, sustainable aviation fuel, shipping fuel, green salmon, green steel, uh, energy efficiency and cooling systems for, for data centers, and so on and so forth, right? So it's a, uh, probably small modular reactors in nuclear and things like this. Um, uh, if you look at that that set of technologies, uh, there's on, as Karen was saying at the beginning, there's only one which is in the money today, that's solar. Uh, solar and, and wind to some extent, but solar is in the money. Uh, EVs, electric vehicles, are about to be uh, in the money, so self-sustained without any type of subsidies. So I think the role of blended finance, and, and this is this is why programs like the IRA and, uh, is, are, are so efficient, is that it helps accelerating the learning curve. Uh, of, of those new technologies, so making, so putting them in the money uh, two, three, five years before they would normally be if you, we were just uh, 
waiting for market forces to 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 be to be at play. Um, this is why it's so efficient. And and countries, be sovereign wealth funds in Asia or in the Middle East, uh, the U.S., Canada, uh, uh, Mexico, European Union, and and several governments in, in have understood that it's a good deal for the economies because well you accelerate the learning curves in all those asset heavy job creating um, um, industries so at the end uh, it's not only taxpayer money going out the door but it's also job creation and wealth for 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 their economies so that system at least for for developed economies uh, uh, is is probably going to work uh, very very well and so what does what needs to happen to bring blended finance options uh, to scale as a solution to transition funding there's quite a big market but to date there's not been a whole lot of uh successful projects that have started up using blended finance how do we scale that that up so it becomes a, a real force for good within the transition sector i think there is some sequencing um so t- to the point around what technologies can come to scale what lessons have been learned by uh, say the example of solar and how solar was, has been such a successfully financed dimension of the transition there are obviously some projects which are becoming more viable um, or more bankable, um, as we say. So, again, referring to the study that we we did, David, we looked a little bit at what is, say, the past, the now, the next and the beyond when it comes to transition finance. We, we, we did it very simply, but just looking at the rate of deployment of capital and the amount of money that's collect- cumulatively available for these technologies. And... Um, you know, we can see, obviously, that today solar and onshore wind, nuclear to a certain extent, and gigafactories are all um, being financed quite successfully today. Um, but the next uh, generation, if you will, of technologies or projects, we do think will come down to offshore wind, uh, public charging uh, points for electrification, um, bioenergy and um, energy efficiency. So that can cover both the real estate and industrial segments. But there are some areas um, of the finance, of the transition agenda that still remain pretty hard to figure out. Um, Hydrogen is a really good example of a technology that is talked about a lot. But actually, if you look at the amount of capital that's available and you look about at the rate of deployment, it's actually um, not so successful. So I think it's an interesting one for how, um, say, investors and banks on the like we have on the telephone today, we'll think about where they see the easiest opportunities in the next um, two to three years. Absolutely. Um, and, and so how does blended finance help with the high upfront costs and the long payback periods, which we see uh, in many projects that you know secure finance otherwise, um, solar and wind being among those? What is it about blended finance that can help other projects be more attractive to private investors? I think it's important to think about a lot of these energy transition projects um, as large capex and pretty hefty opex as well um, projects, and it requires you know quote unquote a lot of steel in the ground, right? That explains the long you know tenor of these financing that's required because it's not just multiple years of a construction. Ahead before that, it could be multiple years of permitting. And that's, by the way, one area public sector has to come in and really reset the entire permitting process. Because if we're talking about reducing emissions by 40, 50 percent by 2030, you know, 
7,000 gigawatt of renewable energy to be installed between now and 2030, right? We're roughly at about 4,000 gigawatt globally. So even just taking that wind and solar that we've been talking about, the most mature technologies, you know, if we have done 4,000 to date, we have to done we have to do 7,000. Given the cops call of double down, triple up, you know, we have a lot of work to do, right? So even on that side, you think about, you know, we're working on some of the largest renewable projects onshore in the United States right now. Permitting took about three to four years. So we're going to waste a very precious amount of time um, in the short window we have um, to really make a global impact on permitting, which is something that we should probably get out of our own way to do that. So I do think that's important why, you know, then you're talking about permitting plus construction and start to operate. So these financings, many of the energy transition financings we're seeing are easily 10 to 20 year financing, which is longer than traditional commercial sector, um, private sector credit, you know, financing to companies. So that's one thing. And then you think about the factors that we've been talking about commercial viability. So technology risk is real. Right. Even if many scientists have been telling us there are pathways of producing sustainable aviation fuel, alcohol to jet versus power to liquids, the jury is out. Which one is going to be more cost effective, more scalable? So we have to bet on both, for example. But when you think about that, clearly technology risk isn't fully resolved today or at least clear to developers and investors which way is the, let's say, the easiest way to get to the goal that we want to achieve. Then you're thinking about construction. Construction risk and operational risk is real as well, right? I think the number one shortage that we don't talk about enough, and we actually start to talk a lot more about that at this COP, is really the labor shortage. Skilled labor to install, for example, in the United States, we don't have enough workers that know how to install offshore wind turbines, right? And by the way, on top of that, we need U.S. Jones Act ships to actually carry these turbines. That's another regulatory point where we don't have enough of these U.S. ships available to install the 30 gigawatt we want to do by 2030, for example. So labor shortage and some of the other regulatory constraints I talked about for construction, for operating is real, right? Then you're talking about credit. I do think that's an element that we can actually help ourselves more because when we think about public private blended finance, we tend to think about tax incentives. We tend to think about grants that reduce upfront cost or at least help pay for part of the capex. We don't think about the public sector's role, whether it's a federal government, state government, municipals, um, cities, what they can do on the offtake contract side, right? I cannot think of many, many projects that we at Bank America have financed without a very strong at least for the majority of the future revenues, very strong offtake contracts. Maybe we have certain amount of uncovered contracts for merchant risk, but a lot of that is covered right by investment grade offtakers because we need that since we have all the other risk factors that we're dealing with that we just talked about, technology, construction, operating. So I think it's extremely important to think about public sector, how they step up as offtakers of these technologies Right. And we talked about green hydrogen, whether it's becoming e-fuels, e-natural gas, e-methanol. We could use public sector's help, not just give us money up front, but as the offtaker of these green output. Um, I think that role is very important and we need to see them play in that role as well. And lastly, I would say in emerging markets, you have to add on the currency risk. Right. Most funding we're talking about right now are dollar and euro based. But we all know in emerging markets 
right? Given that, you know, the forward rate of exchange rates expected to depreciate against the dollar and euro because the rates tend to be higher, right? They pay higher upfront, you know, rates, therefore their future effects for exchange rate is expected to depreciate. So if you actually hedge everything back to the dollars, instead of giving them local currency funding, it makes the projects even harder to finance because it'll have even harder cost revenue gap. So I think that currency risk, we will not be able to do that in the private sector on a project by project basis because simply it's too costly to hedge it back. We need World Bank IMF to come up with a blended currency hedging tool. I think that's another risk that we haven't fully talked about as well. And uh, I would add to this, we, we also need private capital and not KKR. This is this is what, what how we see our role going forward in, in, in this, right? So we have to, to take the perspective if you put things in perspective, those things take time, right? So, so uh, really, the, the solar power started to take off with the feed-in tariffs in, in Spain and Germany back in 2007, uh, and then in, in, in and the tax credits that that ensued in other countries. And uh, but it's that was more than 15 years ago. Uh, uh, this year would be the first year that the number one car in sales in the world is an EV. Uh, uh, nobody would have said that 10 years ago, uh, but it took 10 years, uh, right? And it took a, a crazy guy in the Silicon Valley and, 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 and a lot of uh, goodwill from the Chinese government to, to try to dominate the, the battery technologies and, and, and all this. So those, those things take 10 years, 15 years. Uh, to, so, so we can be hopeful that, that yes, we will solve the technology risk on, on, on sustainable aviation fuel. We will have green steel. We will have green cement. We, we will we will solve all this, but we just have to be to be patient, right? So we're not talking about two guys in a garage in Palo Alto writing software and then, uh, and in five years it's solved. It's 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 big. It's capex. It's still in the ground. And, and it's going to, to 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 take time. So you need patient capital, right? This is why public companies are struggling because they have they have to report every quarter on everything they invest, everything they do. They, if you're managing public balance sheet, and, I'm, and I was in that position in a, a, few, a few years ago, you cannot decently use public markets, public equity to do this. You need to rely on, on, on people like like the ones you have around the table today to really finance this together with 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 uh, government government money. So blended finance is a really uh, important tool for. Uh, Covering risk and shifting risk away from the, from private uh, from the private sector and putting it onto maybe the public sector a bit more, um, especially over the longer term. Do you see the private sector perhaps being more willing in the coming years to take greater risk uh, in order to accelerate the the transition? Well, I think to a certain extent there are, there are limits and there are boundaries to which. Um, the private sector can feasibly make or understand its own commercial um, uh, requirements. So within the world of banking, for example, um, there are capital requirements uh, that are that are rules-based. Um, they're very um, well-established. Um, clearly, they were um, a, a very key part of the regulatory regime that emerged out of the global financial crisis and are critical to ensuring systemic safety of the financial system over, overall. Um, when, when banks set aside capital um, in order to operate safely, um, one of the key dimensions is, is credit risk. And um, a, a, sufficiently, uh, a sufficient amount of capital has to be set aside. And when we talk about these projects, as, a, as we've been discussing, um, they're, they're big, um, they're, they're over time, there are technology risks, they may be operating in 
markets uh, that could be deemed as risky. And simply put, central bank requirements say that bank, uh, banks need to set aside sufficient capital on that. And unless a bank can actually fulfill its cost of capital, it makes it very difficult to, to make it bankable. So th- this is, there are limitations to the degree that the private sector can finance um, these projects. And what about the public sector on that side of things from the public finance? Do public, uh, does the public purse benefit from um, providing that sort of that, that, um, that blended finance? Do go, will governments get a return on their investment as well and therefore can increase income for their public services, things like healthcare and education and things like do the Do the public funds benefit as well? I mean, I think Emmanuel mentioned things like jobs creation and the broader economic agenda that clearly are seen as benefits. But generally speaking, and this uh, at the risk of a generalization, public sector financing tends to be um, either, you know, um, in the grant form or concessional forms or with some types of guarantees um, and, and very generous loan mechanisms. That's the whole purpose of the public component. And that's why uh, these projects can get financed because without that benefit, um, it's very difficult to get the initial capital available to these um, early stage initiatives. Maybe, maybe I'll comment on that point as well, uh, just to follow follow what Will said. Um, I do think, in the traditional sense, that is the case, right? You sort of look at, you know, even your question: what is a return on investment for the public sector or a return on investment for the private sector? But I think we've got to turn this thing on its head a little bit, right? For private sector, all of the pools that you're talking about are regulated, right? Um, banks, insurance companies, pension funds, uh, and then even on quote unquote less regulated, whether it's private equity or endowments, foundations, they have objectives of their stakeholders that it's not just solely on energy transition. When you think about public sector, it's also not solely on energy transition, but I think we need to think about avoided costs as part of the return on investment for the public sector, because public sector finances for the broader good, right? So instead of spending money post wildfire, wildfires or flooding or a hurricane because the infrastructure wasn't resilient enough, right? And you have to end up spending a lot more money or because of the climate change and on, on public health, the crisis on public health and how much additional healthcare costs, which tend to be borne by governments and public sector as well. You just think about kind of the present value of future damage control, disaster relief, you know, cost prevention. That actually potentially is a way we've got to start thinking about the return on investment on public sector, because ultimately a lot of those costs are borne, at least in today's construct, by the public sector. So I think we need to start thinking about the return on investment for public sector a little bit differently than the return on investment from a private sector, which largely are pools of investment money that was chasing largely an economic return and the stakeholder objectives. Where the public sector, it's not really about ROI per se, it's about return on the overall investment for the broader good and avoided costs in the future. Sure, yeah, really interesting. Um, Cara, how have you seen blended finance lead to more uh, innovative and transformative solutions when addressing uh, the challenges posed by climate change? Is is blended finance merely pooling uh, monetary resources or are there uh, creative and, uh, and uh, set mechanisms that are now in place? Well, David, it's it's an important question because I, 
if you look at aggregate volumes of blended finance, they've been relatively flat the past few years. So probably not the the hard swing, um, you know, up up into the right that um, you might hope. But but part of that is some of the dynamics that we're talking about, and Karen just articulated very well, kind of the difference between public sector objectives in terms of financing and private sector objectives. That said, um, where we actually have seen, I think, a a dramatic uh, increase and evolution is on the innovation side. Um, And and I think that is not necessarily going to be measured in these aggregate numbers, but you see for the first time things like debt for nature swaps that we're spending, you know, a lot of time. That's an important innovation, right? It's effectively letting private markets, you know, come in to take on, you know, enhanced um, sovereign credit risk with a nature benefit. I think that's a great example. Um, You know, another area on the de-risking side is just the ability to bring to more development finance institutions. And by the way, this will be magnified because of some of the commitments that I mentioned at the beginning from World Bank and Asian Development Bank and others, the ability to bring them into the capital markets with credit enhancements, that then brings private sector capital and sometimes into markets where they're actually not used to investing, either you know, in local currency or because of sovereign risk. And so there, there is a, a lot of innovation happening on the credit guarantee side. Um, you know, some of that is actually, you know, can be either capped returns. Some of that can be can look like um, more performance based incentives. So you're not just giving a grant and then the project developer can kind of use it as is. Um, but you're actually, you know, putting KPIs or duration. So I think there are innovative financing techniques. And the whole point of using those is to be able to get to higher leverage multipliers. So you have the development banks come in, they have their, you know, climate, environmental and economic development objectives. And so I think to your point that that is actually really critical, because what we need to see in a lot of these markets is through the investment in energy transition or climate, also these markets getting to a place where they're more, you know, resilient and able to adapt to the effects of climate or health benefits. Um, So that I think is, is a really important part And then I'll just say another area, and we've had personal experience with this, um, is, you know, looking at things like country pilots. That's an innovative way to scale, um, you know, have a demonstration effect, as Emmanuel mentioned, right? Some of these technologies may be proven in certain markets, right? Solar looks may look very different in Spain than it does um, in different markets. And so actually the ability to take country pilots, and we did this actually with Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Asian Development Bank, we launched a climate innovation and development fund that was focused on South and Southeast Asia. And we started in India and Vietnam. Um, because those were middle-income cr- countries, high emitting, and we knew that if we were able to find projects where there was a demonstration effect, then that could create a pipeline of further investment on the back end, which again helps with just unlocking these flows. Um, and and that structure, we were actually able to get a twenty times multiple. So we put in twenty-five million of. Um, grant concessional financing, and we were able to to generate over 500 million in total investment across public and private. Part of the reason that multiplier is so high is because of the concessional nature of the financing. So I think that's maybe the last piece I'd mention. Um, innovation is going to help to scale because you're going to get the multiplier development bank reform is going to help, but ultimately having more concessional capital 
which is harder on the private sector side. But that will, you know, be a very significant um, tool to unlock multiples of capital. And I do think it was notable at COP that you saw a lot of philanthropies actually stepping up and saying, we're making a pretty big, um, you know, commitment, allied capital partners, um, is is an organization that was formed, you know, about I think six months ago. That's specifically focused on doing this. So I think that um, that will be an important development as well. Absolutely, uh, Emmanuel. What what role can private equity play in helping banks uh, provide leverage within the, within the blended finance space? You mentioned earlier the need for uh, private funds such as uh, such as, as KKR having an important role to play in helping banks. Um, like Goldman Sachs and Bank of America here, uh, to really um, drive investment into these projects. What other sort of roles does private equity play here? Uh, it, it's 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 critical for for private equity and banks to 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 work together because again, it's it's uh, there's a, a lot of steel in the ground, a lot of lot of capex. Uh, so not everything is going to be equity. You need a lot of um, patient. Uh, equity there, but you need a lot of project finance, a lot of a lot of that also on on on, on many of those projects. So think about uh, if you want to build a green steel plant today, uh, there is one coming up now in, in Europe, for instance, and it's uh, two billion of equity and three billions of debt. Uh, this is what it takes, right? Five billions, and then you have to 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 balance this well. And definitely, equity investors and, and banks have to work hand in hand on how you finance those those. Uh, those those, uh, those new decarbonization uh, uh, assets, uh, because we usually have the same view on the technology risk. Is the the risk out? Is it a false positive? Like so, as Will was mentioning that uh, hydrogen is not financed to the tune of uh, what it's it should be. Well, there's probably a bubble in, in in hydrogen actually, right? So I don't think we'll ever see cars or trucks or buses running on hydrogen on our roads. Uh, we will need hydrogen to do sustainable aviation fuel, green steel, maybe cement, maybe shipping fuel. Uh, but uh, take the the hydrogen um, estimates of your preferred consultant and divide by three. You're probably closer to the to to to, to reality. So again, it's just to say that. Uh, Banks and private equity have usually the same perception of risk. We look at the same objects, we just come with different tools uh, here. And it's critical that, that we work hand in hand in providing both equity and, and, and debt to those projects. Absolutely. And collaboration is a really important part of this with many stakeholders um, coming to the table, both private on the private and public side. Um, Karen, how can how does blended finance encourage collaboration? And is, is collaboration um, a... Is that easy, an easy thing to come by? And how do we make the collaboration between all these various stakeholders easier? Well, first of all, collaboration is necessary because we all talked about how we are not going to get there on the volume or the speed unless we collaborate. The second thing is I think collaboration has been re- really fun. You know, I've been well on Wall Street for 25 years. And then frankly, the last few years, last decade has been very fun for a lot of the technologies when talking about renewable energy. But the last few years has been really, really exciting uh, because I think the IRA is driving this renaissance, right, in terms of manufacturing renaissance, construction renaissance in the U.S., to Emmanuel and Kara's point, unless we work together. I mean, we're literally uh, just reached FID on a $10 billion CapEx project. I mean, if three years ago you asked me one project, one sponsor, you know, would it be what's the largest size you guys are seeing? Probably 3 to $5 billion. One project, $10 billion, right? So I think that's the optimism that I'm feeling where 
people are collaborating way better and public and private sector and across the private sector constituents, whether it's VC, PE, you know, philanthropies, banks, insurance, pension funds. It's necessity. But at the same time, I think it's brought on a lot of energy, positive energy, um, you know, and, and the space, to be honest with you, we all we all love nature. I, I haven't really seen a lot of people that don't love nature, that just want to stay indoors all day. And I think it's brought on a lot of really great collaboration. You know, at B of A, we do a lot of work with Development Finance Corporation. I mean, this debt for nature transaction in Gabon um, that we did $500 million this year is brought us to learn about West Africa, learn about nature conservation, nature conservancy being a great um, NGO has been doing this work across the globe that taught us a lot about biodiversity, right? So collaboration has been fun and it's also been tremendously exciting from a learning perspective. And these collaboration is bearing real fruit and that results are getting more people excited to follow the playbook and collaborate even more. And I think that exponential effect on volume and speed, I think that's really what's gonna drive all of us around this table to actually really kind of talk to each other more and collaborate. It's, I, I think in this space, competition is a misnomer, right? Because I don't think we, you know, Goldman Sachs and, and Bank of America need to compete each other. Frankly, we see each other in consortiums a lot. We see KKR, we see Blackstone, we see other private equity funds collaborating as well. So I think that's the, that's the a positivity that I'm sensing from this is that we all realize it's necessary, but it's also extremely exciting. I was just going to add really quickly, I, I think the I can't I couldn't agree more with Karen. And I think that eco if you look at the ecosystem now of folks who are at the table on blended finance, right, you have it's so different than it was years ago. And you have, you know, you have private sector, you obviously have folks like us on the call in terms of banks and, you know, the largest private equity firms across the world. You have um, development banks, development finance institutions, you have governments, you have nonprofits, you have uh, conservation firms, right? And I think an increasing area, guess what? If you want to look at impacts of these projects, you need really good data. Data is really hard to do, particularly when you're looking at things like, you know, nature and um, even health impacts. And so I think you're going to have firms that have built really good data capabilities, actually, that are going to start to do more around this front, too. And so and innovation technology and learning from each other, I think you're going to start to see more innovation and just overall, you know, continued progress. We're definitely spending more time on blended finance now than we were, you know, 12, yeah. 18 months uh, ago. Is, is, is the climate emergency, uh, climate change, however, however you want to frame it, is that providing the impetus for the greater uh, role of collaboration in the, in the sector? People are aware of the, the need for the, for the rapid change. I think there's certainly an awareness, but ultimately, like, you know, we are, um, you know, we are commercially motivated enterprises. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, we have, I think all of us sort of have public commitments around sustainability, which is important, including commercially. So we have a $750 billion um, sustainable finance target. I know, um, Bank of America has a large sustainable finance target too. That's important to show ambition, but ultimately, right, what what goes into that total number really just comes down to individual mandates we do with clients. And those are only going to make sense if they're commercial to do, 
right? So I think that's a really important acknowledgement that sometimes there's a different view that actually the financial sector, private equity firms, banks can decarbonize much faster than all these other parts of the economy. It's it's really not true. It's 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 a bit of an odd way to look at it. I think the, the realistic way to look at it is we can be an accelerant through our financing and funding and obviously more on the asset management side too. Um, but what allows us to, in many ways, move faster, allocate more capital are the things that we, we've been talking about in terms of real policy incentives, um, innovation, offtake agreements, things that will actually allow that deployment to happen at a faster pace. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act, I think, is really monumental um, in terms of that. There's been, I mean, we all know kind of the headlines of incentives that have been earmarked, but we've seen... 500 billion of, you know, project related announcements on the back of the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's a really significant numbers that we're talking about. So I think in some ways, we haven't really seen that come through. Um, Now, of course, the execution is important. So we are in a challenging environment, we have higher uh, cost of capital, um, rising rates, inflation, um, that is going to, you know, there's some execution things permitting, as Karen mentioned, when it takes a long time to permit a project. And, you know, rates um, and you have higher rates that becomes much more expensive. So there are a lot of um, we're going to move at kind of probably different paces in different markets and different technologies. But I think ultimately, those are the things that are really going to be on unlocks. Commitments are great. But at the end of the day, it really just comes from, um, I think, you know, making these projects commercially viable and particularly in the blended finance context, really bankable um, and trying to address some of those risks that we know are there, whether that's FX, you know, sovereign country risk, et cetera. Yeah, just the, the, the point I wanted just to add very briefly is, is that I think there's now a general understanding that there's no trade-off anymore between decarbonizing and, and, and generating uh, growth. Uh, you can have both, right? So everybody's understanding now that decarbonization is a good business to be in. Uh, and you're going to 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 generate uh, uh, growth for for your for your stakeholders uh, on top of uh, uh, solving a, a major a major issue for the planet. Right? So so this is this is where where we are. And, and three four years ago that was not obvious, but now it's clear. There's no trade off anymore. And and I do think the client is in the middle, right? And when you think about we talked about capex opex across different sectors that have to decarbonize, it's a business opportunity. Whether it's two hundred seventy five trillion dollars, you know, whether it's you know three to five trillion dollars a year. So I, mean, I think depending on who you ask, it's three to nine trillion dollars a year. That's a business opportunity, right? And I think one thing that we will have to give UAE some credit, a lot of credit, Dr. Sutan, on driving through this you know, 200 country consensus on phase, you know, really kind of moving away from fossil fuels, whether people are complaining that's not mandatory yet, or the phase down, phase out isn't clear. I think it's a, it's a milestone. We all have to pause and reflect on because you just think about the amount of dollars that will have to go from just pumping out fossil fuel into carbon capture and sequestration into building renewables, triple up, maybe even like quadruple renewable energy, just the amount of revenue potential for someone that even if they don't believe in climate science, just to think about the bottom line impact uh, as the world, even the oil rich nations agree that we got to eventually move away from fossil fuels. So if you're not participating in that transition, transition, you're sort of losing this bottom line or business or revenue opportunity as well. Right. So that's why I think the work on finance, it's an as an enabler 
of enabling industries, enabling sectors to actually do this effectively, so they survive and evolve and adapt to the future. Right? It's that's really the role that all of us are playing here is enabling that transition in an orderly and equitable manner. And I think eight thousand companies, two hundred governments, right? These commitments will lead to a change on investment. And I think that's the thing that people have to focus on. It's no longer a cultural moral debate. It's an economic opportunity. And I think also just to reflect on some of the optimism that's been expressed on this particular discussion is the fact that you do have an incredible wealth of intelligence and financial engineering expertise that through the blended finance mechanism, you're actually bringing that capability to be able to figure out how to solve these problems. And they are non-obvious problems. And everyone within the private market sector from a financial point of view has different appetites for risk and can calculate their own risk appetite and the types of returns they need to make. But by coming together collectively, when especially you think about projects within developing economies, a lot of the infrastructure that exists within those um, economies doesn't necessarily have all of that financial markets expertise. So the blended finance opportunity as in terms of a renaissance, especially from an engineering and um, uh, structuring point of view, I think is actually uh, pretty exciting just for the financial services industry more broadly. Absolutely. Um, my final question um, is about the role private uh, sector have in engaging with government entities, both either in, maybe in the global south uh, when trying to um, finance uh, these projects, but also with uh, national governments in the in the developed world that are provide, providing a lot of this blended finance capital on the public side. What role does the private sector play in engaging with these government entities uh, to encourage uh, greater levels of, of finance and more uh, creative uh, mechanisms? For us, we, it's it's a constant dialogue with all the governments, uh, uh, because they, uh, and I think the, the, the deal is, is very simple. They say, okay, we're providing those blended finance um, uh, instruments, the IRA, Renew Deal, and, and so on and so forth, uh, to de-risk your investment, your, your entry into those decarbonization adventures. Uh, now you financial services uh, actors and private equity in our case, you have to do your part, so it's it's uh, it's constantly a constant dialogue to to fine tune, adjust how, how you deploy those programs uh, practically. So so it's it's and it's a very positive and very mature uh, uh, conversation with all the governments. I agree with uh, Emmanuel. I think it's constant as well. Now I would say our our engagement with governments and public sector is kind of dividing into three categories. One is really on the regulatory front, whether it's true regulation, right? Methane emissions reduction. Like we all agreed on that now at this COP. So let's get it done. How do we actually provide feedback on what makes it easier to finance more methane reduction projects, right? Or IRA during the rulemaking, I think private sector has given a lot of feedback about transferability, direct pay, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to continue to engage on regulatory incentives, rulemaking, clarity, removing bottlenecks. That's one. Two is, you know, when you think about the work that we've been doing at, B, at B of A with the G7 on the Just Energy Transition Partnership in Indonesia and Vietnam, I mean, it's, it's, it's a new world to learn how the G7 negotiates with the host country and how private sector's input then gets reflected. I mean, that's been the type of thing, but we all know without those high emitting countries, Kara talked about some of the countries as well, you know, 
transitioning, we're not going to get to net zero. So I think those technical assistance, financing framework conversations, it's another form that we engage with the G7, G20. And then the last thing is project, right? We have to actually get more stuff done. So the work, for example, we've been doing with DFC in Gabon and many other countries for to restructure sovereign debt for nature, as well as just the political risk insurance across all the technology sectors in the global south, as we call it, um, that all needs some kind of government engagement. We have to make sure strategically it, it's aligned with the country's objectives, as well as obviously the, the, the decarbonization global objective. And we have to really get the MDB DFI to the table as well through the public sector engagement. So those are the three categories that we continue to work with governments and public sector. And, and maybe just the last thing I would add, um, I mean, I, I would echo the points around constant engagement. Um, you know, I do think from a regulatory standpoint for financial institutions, um, we do also need to be thinking about how regulatory frameworks, particularly those that there are some that exist today around capital requirements, and then there's some that are being introduced for the future, including as it relates to things like climate risk or transition planning. So which are you know, effectively transition planning um, for those who are less close to it is really how you integrate your climate risk approach and strategy as well as your net zero objectives into business strategy. It's really important that as those are de developed, they actually complement and encourage financing around transition and low carbon deployment, particularly in emerging markets. Um, I don't know that we're there yet. So again, some of these are, are, are being proposed and developed. But I do think that's a particular important, particularly important point because often what happens is we have these different types of conversations around kind of government and regulatory support. So we have policy incentives on one side, right? Or we have engagement around funding transition looks a little bit different than regulatory, um, you know, requirements that are being introduced kind of in other parts um, uh, of, of the economy um, and of government. So in my mind, that's actually going to be really critical. If you think about many of the obstacles that all of us talked about today, there's a way where regulatory frameworks can help and incent, and then there's a way that they can limit. Um, and so I think that's just the last piece I would add on on importance of government engagement here. Yeah. Um, just finally then, Will, how do we effectively measure the impact of blended finance on the success and sustainability of energy transition projects? I think we'll put it down into the velocity of capital that we've been talking about, just to see as much money move into these um, these critical technologies and projects and infrastructures that will be required for the world to decarbonize. Um, I think if we can see more precedents, more projects getting financed, more innovation in the market that can be built on. And I guess also the cohesion or the further integration of all of the different market actors, this ecosystem we've talked about, that get sort of build that muscle around how they work together so that they can do stuff more quickly, more efficiently to, to enable that increased velocity. I think that will be a really uh, amazing milestone um, in the climate agenda. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, sadly, that's all we have time for uh, on this episode of Talking Transitions. My thanks to Cara, Emmanuel, Karen and Will for joining us. Please do rate, review and share the podcast using the hashtag Talking Transitions, all one word, to join the conversation. We'll see you again next time.